Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for each person that's here. We ask you to bless this time as we look at the book of Micah and help and guide us as we go through it. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Micah chapter 6. Hear you now what the Lord says. Arise, continue before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you the mountains, the Lord's controversy, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto you, and wherewith have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought up brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed you out of the house of the servants. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now that what Balak king of Moab consulted, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Wherewithal shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high king? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams or with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for the transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He have showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, to do just, justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We'll stop there because that's quite a bit in this. Micah is saying, hear you now what the Lord says. And this word for hear is the usual one that we've been reading. It's hear and obey. So it says, hear what the Lord says. Arise, contend before the mountains and let the voice of hills hear your voice. And so he's saying, rise up. Rise up and listen. And it says to contend with the, before the mountains. And mountains are a symbol of power. And authority. So it says, contend with the authority and let the hills hear your voice. And we've talked about the high hills and the high places, and, and it usually refers to places of worship. Okay, the high places. All through Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, they say such and such king rose up and he got rid of the idols, but he did not clear the high places. And that, or the groves, and those were where they would worship. They would go to the mountaintops to worship God. And that's still done even in our day as people worship idols. They almost always go to the top of mountains. Whatever's the highest place, they worship their God there. And here God is contending with his people. Remember, Micah is, is prophesying during Hezekiah, Ahab, and, and all these kings out there. And they are, for the most part, the, Israel, the kings of Israel are awful. And they're leading Israel into captivity. And they're just a couple generations from captivity for Israel. And so he's prophesying and say, stand up, people. Listen and be ready to contend. And it says, hear you, mountains, the Lord's controversy. And you strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with his people. And he will plead with Israel. And he's saying, God's going to stand up. He's got a controversy. He's got an issue with his people and, or, or a dispute. He's, he's going to come and give, uh, make them answer him. And we saw this, you know, we, if you remember the book of Job, we go through most of the book of Job, and then all of a sudden God shows up. And Job has been, you know, pleading his case, saying he's innocent, and God comes in and says, you know, hey, you're not as good as you are. Where were you? And gives him a lot of hard questions. But then forgives him and, and re-promotes him back to where he was at. But God has this ability to come in and present us with his controversy. 
oftentimes even we as we're walking with him sometimes there's those times when god comes into our presence and says you know hey you know what have you been doing and it, and it may be through a teacher giving a message it could be as you're reading the scripture and hopefully you've had those times when you're reading through your scriptures your daily reading or whatever and all of a sudden god kind of hits you between the eyes and says pay attention you know you're not you're not walking you know as good as you might think you are and a lot of times we have this problem where we start thinking that we're doing really good. Uh, there's a guy out of the prison that every time, every time I talk to him, he wants to defend how good he is and how, how he's obeying God and following all the rules of God. And I'm going, okay, God, you're going to have to get hold of him because he really does think that he has it all together. You know, which is kind of interesting. Seems how he's in prison in the first place. Self-righteous, huh? He's kind of self-righteous. He always wants to figure out what part he has in salvation, what part you know he plays in everything. And it's like, well, you don't play any part of it. You just surrender. And God oftentimes has those contentions with us. When we think that we're better than we actually are, God will do things to kind of show us, uh, knock us down a couple pegs, and say, you know, here's who you really are. And this is something we've got to be very careful of because usually when we start thinking higher of ourselves, we also get we usually get judgmental of others who aren't walking quite as good as we think we're walking. And we see it we see it with the lost world too when they get well it's always good to come to church. It's always good to be with other believers. It's always good to be in your Bible. Doesn't mean though that you're going to have everything put together just because you do those things. Greg Laurie has, has said the easiest place to get a hard heart is in church because you hear the truth. And I'm sure he's not the first one, but he's the, he's the one that I've heard it from. And it, but it sounds like something that would be said by many other pastors because it is true. The more you hear God's word, the more you hear his truth and do not respond to it, the harder your heart will get. And you see, we saw that when the ten plagues hit Egypt and, and Pharaoh's heart kept getting harder and harder. He knew what he had to do right from the very first plague when the, when the water was turned to blood. He knew what he was supposed to do and refused to do it. And his heart got very hard until the point where God took his son. But this is what we see oftentimes. It's easy to get a hard heart as you listen to God if you're not listening with the right spirit and trying to apply his truth to your life. And many, many Christians have been there, going to church frequently, going so much, and they just start getting a little hard-hearted and not saying, you know, and it might be something as simple as, well, I've heard that before. And that's a dangerous place to be, is thinking that you've heard something before, because you may or may not have heard it before, the way it's being taught right then. And this is why I say, I read through the Bible every, every year, and it always seems like there's something new in there. Always something that I've never noticed before. Even though I know the stories real well, all of a sudden something will jump off the page and say, here's something new. And we see that. And all of a sudden God starts tying other parts of the scriptures all together for us. We see how complete the book is. Most people tend to think of this as 66 books that are totally separate. But as you study it, you find out it's 66 books that are totally integrated and, and tied together in ways that you never even imagine when you first start getting into it. But God says here in verse 2, he has a controversy with his people. Israel is following after idols. Judah has been following after idols off and on. And in Israel, they have had golden calf worship from Jeroboam's time on all the way to the end. They worship golden calves. 
and other yeah. idols. And we see here God saying, I have a problem with my people. <laughs> we never really want to have God say he has a problem with us. We'll hear it frequently you know, if we're honest with ourselves that God sometimes has a problem with us. And it's time for us to sit back and say, okay, God, I'm ready to change my life. I'm ready to do what you want. And here God's saying, I have an argument. I have an argument. I have, I'm going to plead my case with them. I'm going to give the reasons for them. Verse 3, O my people, what have I done to you? And wherein have I wearied you? Testify against me. This is something that happens very frequently in Jewish books and teaching. God will ask, there's questions. And oftentimes when, when the rabbi would sit down, he'd, he would ask a question, people would answer him, and he'd find out where they are, and then he'd go from where they are and ask further questions. Here God's doing the same thing. He's saying, what have I done unto you? What, what have I done that's made you leave me? How have I made you weary? And these are questions God's asking. And then he goes, testify against me. So, or answer, tell me what's going on. God did that to jo uh, Job as well. He says, you know, Job, where, where were you when I laid the foundations? Where were you when I hung, hung the world in, in space? Where were you? You know, and asked him all kinds of questions. And when God speak, starts speaking in the book of Job, it's a wonderful place to go if you're into, into science because you see the water cycle. You see the nitrogen cycle being described. You see all these different things about animals being described. It's a great book for scientific discovery and, has led, and is what led to many of those discoveries when people, people would look in there and say, well, I wonder if these things are true. And they started looking at the water, the water falls, goes down to the ocean, and returns back to the sky. And we know that now. We, back then, they didn't understand that. They didn't understand when things died, they went back to the ground and, went, and, and regenerated back into other, other things. They didn't understand it, yet God talked about it in Job. This is the wonderful thing about the Bible. Now, the Bible is not a science book, but when it touches science, it's true. It's not a history book, but when it talks about history, it's true. Okay. And we, we look at this and we say, God has given us a wonderful, true book to tell us about himself. And where he touches things, he touched just enough to show us that it is absolutely true. There, there's a verse in Psalms that says, all the paths of the sea lead to the Lord. And one guy decided, wanted to see where there are really paths to the sea. And he's the one that developed navigation by looking at the, the currents of the oceans and found out there were paths in the seas that make currents and help you get from, you know, travel the seas. And so the Bible has always covered that kind of stuff. Verse 4, God starts again, another history. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of servants, or literally slaves. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. God keeps reminding them, I have been doing things for you. And this is something for us to always remember because usually we start remembering all the bad things that happened to us and all the hardships that happened to us. And God is trying to say, remember, I have done things for you. And this is an important, we talk about this frequently, it is important for us to put into writing or at least remembrance the good things God does for us. Because so, when Satan comes in and attacks us when we're down and, so, and we start buying into this, well, nothing good ever happens to me. We can be able to go back and say, oh, no, God did 
you know, God delivered me here, he saved me here, he provided for me here, uh, he gave me a job here, he, you know, gave me a house here, whatever it might be, whatever it is that God has done for you, you need to make those a memory in your in your mind so that when Satan comes along and, and starts accusing and saying nothing good ever happens and you're just worthless and God doesn't care about you and we've all been there it, it, even if it's just for minutes we've all been there where, where we get ready to have a pity party and if we go far enough into that pity party we can ruin a large chunk of our life for days months years <laughs> I've seen some people who've ruined their entire life because they've just fallen into this pity party and, and decided that nothing good has ever happened to them. And you try to help remember, help them remember that there are some good things in their life that's going on, maybe even going on right then and that they're overlooking. But God is saying right here, he's saying, hey, yeah, I delivered you. And we're not too far from Egypt at this point. We're sitting probably only about 800 years from Egypt at this point in time and they've forgotten about it. God is telling people to remember, to remember what he's done because it is easy and for some reason we as humans like to concentrate on the negative and bad things that happen to us more than the good. I don't know why that is but in general that's a true statement and you know, there are a handful of people that are positive about everything but they're, they're very rare. It's very easy to, when, you're, when things are going wrong to start thinking everything's going wrong. And God is just saying, hey, remember. Remember what I have done. And with Israel, his greatest thing for them to remember is I took you out of slavery and made you a nation. Okay, we'll see that all over the place. He says, remember. And how fast did they forget? Well, we've been going through the book of Exodus. It didn't take them long in Exodus to forget that God delivered them from Egypt and that, that and when the first time happened it was less than less than a couple months that they were forgetting that God had taken them out of Egypt. And they wanted to go back. And they wanted to go back. They'd forgotten how bad it was to be a slave. That's how bad they thought think, following God was. How easy is it for us sometimes to rebel against serving God and say well, I just want to go back to Egypt. Whatever Egypt might mean to us. Because in the, in the Bible, oftentimes Egypt is a symbol for the flesh and the world. And it's very easy for us to you know, sometimes think, you know, well, man, things were so much nicer back when, before I knew God. And, you know, we forget what it was like to be in drugs and alcohol and a slave to sin and bound up by our sin and start thinking, you know, it was a better life for some reason. And that's a dangerous place to get into. Because when you start longing for what you wanted to get out of in the first place, uh, that's pretty, pretty sad. Our flesh rebels against God real easy. Our flesh wants to rebel against God because it doesn't <coughs> like being obedient. It doesn't like following God. Now we have the spirit that wants to and we have the flesh that doesn't want to. And we have to be careful which one we're trying to feed. Because if we're feeding the flesh, it will, it will rebel against God can turn your whole life over to the sin and, and devastation and what God did to Israel for its rejection of him was to put him into captivity and then eventually Judah followed into captivity. Why? Because they chose not to obey God. Sometimes when we disobey God we're going to follow the same thing. We're going to have some kind of captivity in our life that will bind us up until we're willing to turn around and follow God. And 
here he's saying, you know, look what I did. You know, stand up, get ready to defend yourself. I took you out of Egypt, is what he's telling you. I've, I've sent you leaders. Verse 5, O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. Okay? We're going through the book of Numbers on Wednesday, or finishing the, we finished the book of Numbers, but Balaam was a prophet of God. Balak called him and said, I want you to curse Israel. He went up and you remember, he went to three different hilltops and said, no, I can't say anything more than God says. I, I can't curse Israel. Balak got mad at him, sent him away, and then he sent a message to, to Balak. Balaam sent a message back to Balak saying, hey, I can tell you how to get, them, get their God mad at them, though. I can't curse them, but we can get them to curse themselves, basically. And that's when he told Balak, you know, send in, send in the women to, to entice their men into adultery and fornication and then bring them in and have them bring them to before their gods and worship their gods. Uh, in, number, in Numbers uh, 31, it talks about, uh, 16, it talks about how Balaam had, had, sent, uh, had told Balak to send in the women to draw them into idolatry. And if you remember, God struck them and there was a curse that came upon them and many thousands died because of their sin that they did by, through idolatry. How often do we get ourselves in trouble because we turn away from God and do basically idolatry. We may not be bowing down before an idol, but we're turning away from God and doing everything he doesn't want to and he's going to send judgment our way to try to bring us back to him. And that's the purpose for judgment for those of us that are Christians especially, but even for the lost world, God is trying to draw them back to him with the punishments. The book of Revelation that we, we're, we just finished is the same thing. God's trying to draw, his, draw the last people to him with the harshness of his judgment because he's saying, one last time before I send destruction. Before he sent destruction in, in Noah's day, they had 120 years that it took him to build that ark He's preaching and saying the rain's coming, the judgment's coming. Can you imagine 120 years of preaching and have nobody pay attention? Nobody. It was just him and his family that got on board that ark as far as humans were concerned. 120 years where nobody listened to his message. Preach his entire life the message of God and have it rejected. He kept going. I mean, that would have been, but do you know how hard that job would have been? You know, I'm going to make you the pastor in this town and you're going to preach for 30 years in that town and nobody's going to listen to you. <laughs> nobody's going to respond. What an awful job that would be. But God says here, you know, remember what Balaam did to you and see the righteousness of God. God's judgment upon the people when they turned to idols. Thousands died and then God gave them grace and didn't destroy them completely. God's grace is so wonderful. I really want people to understand God's grace, how gracious he is to us, not destroying everybody and giving all the gifts that he gives people. The people of Israel were taken out of Egypt and immediately they started grumbling and complaining and he provided for them. Most of us, if people grumbled and complained the moment we delivered them from some place, would send them right back or kill them on the spot. You know, it's like, 
you don't appreciate what's been done. You know, we've taken you out of slavery, and we're not even we're not even gone for thirty days, and you're already griping and complaining. <laughs> Moses had quite a job. Every time he turned around, they were griping and complaining about something. Not enough water, not enough food, not the right kind of food. We're tired of this man, and we're tired of the water you're giving us. We're tired of wandering around the desert for all this time. We said we didn't want to go into the promised land, and then they immediately tried to go into the promised land when God said they can't go in and lost thousands of lives because they decided they wanted to try to do things their way. Then he goes in at verse 6. Wherewith, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? We've talked about this. We as Christians are very spoiled because we get to go into the presence of God and ask him anything we want. The Jews had to go before God and the closest they could get to him was the courtyard where they made the offerings of the animals. You could not go into the holy place as a regular person. Only the priest could go in the holy place and you definitely couldn't go into the holy of holies and only one priest once a year got to go into the holy of holies. He had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins and he had to offer the sacrifice for the people's sins and he had to hope when he went in there it was a terrifying place because he was always worried that he had not confessed and offered for every sin. It was a great honor to go into the holy of holies but it was a terrifying thing because if you hadn't totally purified yourself, you might not come back out. And I've never been able to prove it, but there is one historian that said at least eight times a high priest died going into the Holy of Holies. Now, I've never found any other verification of that statement. That's still kind of a scary statement. In, in, yes, that's over hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, but still eight yeah. times to not know whether you were going to come back out and how would you like to be the priest that went in after the, the year after the person had just been struck dead? Uh, that would be terrifying. It would be bad enough, you know, thinking back 100 years ago this happened. But, you know, the one that had to go in the year after that guy had been struck dead, you know, you would, you would be terrified of it. And here it's saying, what can we do to come before the high God, the God of the universe? This is quite a question for him. And he starts out, you know, shall we come before him with burnt offerings and the calves of a year old? That was what they were told to do. Okay, they had to come before God with the burnt offerings. Every year, every new moon. If you remember as we went through numbers, every new, every beginning of the year, a month, there was this big offering that was, you know, some 42 animals, if I remember, that were offered morning and night on the new moon. Uh, every Sabbath day there was this big offering that was seven or eight animals beyond the normal offerings. Then you had the feast that came up which ended up with with these sacrifices. Micah's almost making fun of them with God. You know, you know, are you going to come with just the minimum, just the minimal things you're told to do? Your, your calves of a new year? Your burnt offerings? Well, I take a baby well, that's, young, that's a young calf. But remember we said that the burnt offering is that picture of total dedication. And he said, you know, will your total dedication offerings be enough for me to accept you? And then he goes on to say, will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams? <laughs> or with 
10,000 rivers of oil. He's saying God is not looking for just the obedience of these sacrifices. He's looking for a heart change. Samuel said the same thing to them. Do you think God is, is satisfied with just these offerings? All through the Old Testament, God is saying, these, the simple obedience of these offerings is, I'm just not wanting you to come here and make these offerings. I want your heart to change. He wants us to have a heart change that seeks after him. Not just try to be obedient to, to make you know, ritualistic activity. And this is something that most Christians even are trying to do. What set of rules can I follow that will please God? <laughs> okay, if I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't steal, I don't commit adultery, you know, and you check off these boxes and say somehow when I start doing all of these things, I'll please God. Most people go much more than the Ten Commandments. They're trying to figure out what rules they can follow, and we all do it. You know, I mean, I'm not, we're not making even fun of this. We all tend to do this. The things he's listing are what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to go and offer this burnt offering. And they're supposed to do these sacrifices. And he's saying, I don't just want the obedience to the letter of the law. I want the heart. And this is important. He wants our heart. He's not just saying follow a whole bunch of rules to please him. He wants our heart to be turned over completely to him and a new creation. That we're a new creation that serves him. And when we're looking at it, and believe me, I've seen it over the years in different churches. There's always different, you know, back in the 50s, you don't smoke, you don't drink, you girls didn't wear pants, you know, guys didn't have long hair. And as long as you follow this little bit of list of, list of things that you were doing, you were supposed to be an okay Christian. Violate any of those and you were terrible. <laughs> Dancing, uh, playing cards, going to movies, you know, there were all kinds of things on this list of there was a time when you couldn't even play a game with dice because you could use dice for gambling, so therefore you couldn't play a game that involved using dice in many churches and many Christians. There was a time when Christians weren't even supposed to use computers because computers were going to be the key to the one world government. You know, and it's, it was crazy the things that would be brought up. Churches today still do the same thing. Make their little rules. This is what you do to them. If you want to be a good Christian, this is how you're, how you're supposed to live. But this is what happens in even good Christian churches. This, this happens because people want to follow rules to make themselves know that they're pleasing God rather than God telling us over and over, the, the just shall walk by faith. But it's so much easier to say, well, if I just do these things, and we all kind of make up our own set of rules. The only problem is we look at others who aren't following our rules and wonder why they're not following God. And they have, they're probably looking at us saying, well, you're, you know, they're probably looking at you and saying, well, you're not following my list of rules and having a problem with you. Wow. We talked about when they had the bronze serpent that was raised up that they had to look at to be healed that the snakes bit them. In Hezekiah's day, they were worshiping the bronze serpent as an idol, and, they, and Hezekiah destroyed it because it had become an idol that people worshipped. But you're right. I mean, all through the scriptures you look at, it, they lift Moses up so high that they almost make him a god. You know, and to this day, he is raised up so high that he's almost a god. Not quite. 
Jerusalem. But he is right there. He is the teacher, the, the one to look at. Well, this happens all the time in churches, too, that they raise their pastors up, and they put their pastors up on such a pedestal and say, well, you know, and then the pastor falls and, every, and it devastates people because they're following the pastor instead of, wow. of God. Keep their priorities. Or their pastor dies. Keep <laughs> you know, priorities straight. Goes through a natural death, and they go, well, now what are we going to do? The pastor's no longer here. And it's a place we have to be careful. It is we as people like to see things <laughs> rather than follow by faith. And that's why we put together our little, it's usually unofficial, but we've all been there. We all know if we really think about in our life, what do we think it is to serve God? And we have our little checklist that we're following. I, I read my Bible every day. I pray. I go to church each time it's open. Uh, I don't lie. I don't, <laughs> I don't lie. I don't, I don't cheat. Lie. I, don't uh, I don't take your yeah. And we put our list together, whatever it might be. And it's not necessarily a bad thing because it's what God has been working on in our life. But the problem is when we start taking that and saying, I'm righteous because I'm following this list, or this other person isn't quite as righteous because they're not following the same list that God gave me. We look at this and it says, be very careful. And here they're saying, you know, rivers of, rivers of oil. You know, hey, if I get my firstborn, will God, will God pay attention to me? Some of this list is not what God wants. <laughs> Okay, the idea of sacrificing their firstborn definitely wasn't on his list. The rest of it was what they looked at. God wants the heart rather than obedience. He doesn't, he's not looking for us to sacrifice anything to him other than to be obedient to him. Now that may, that may lead to sacrifices. That may lead to changing my life in certain ways. But what he's really wanting is me to be obedient to whatever it is he's showing me at that particular time. And this is something we watch God coming to people and say, I just want obedience. I want to put a new heart in you that seeks after me. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, 2 Corinthians all talk about that. God putting in a new heart, a new creation, a new, new being on who we are. That new being that desires to follow him in whatever that might be. We look, at a, we look at Elijah. Elijah goes up to Mount Carmel, defeats prophets of Baal, puts them to death. He's had a mighty victory, and Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, and he runs almost 120 miles away to get away from the woman who threatened his life when he had all these prophets of Baal that he had just put to death. And the people were on his side at the moment. And then God meets him down 120 miles away and basically says, what are you doing down here? Get back where you're supposed to be. How many times have we gone and ran the wrong way from God and God's had to come to us and kind of knock on our, our door and say, uh, what are you doing over here? You're supposed to be someplace oh, yeah. else. A lot of times it's a long ways away that we've run away from him. And it may not be even be physically. We may have run a long ways away from him spiritually. And he's saying, what are you doing here? Get back to where you're supposed to be. And here he's, here he's with the people. He's saying, I haven't asked for these things. Verse 8, he says, And he showed me, O man, what is good, that you do what the Lord requires of you to do just, to love mercy, and walk humbly with God. What God is looking for, and this is repeated in many places, Deuteronomy 10, 12, Zechariah 7, 9 through 10, Zechariah 8, 9 and 10, Hosea 6, 6, Romans 13, 10, 
all pretty much say the same thing. God wants us to walk with him, do good to people, be merciful, and to walk humbly. Sometimes that walking humbly is probably the hardest part to do. Being kind to people, that's hard sometimes. But to walk humbly, when we think we're doing things the way we want to, to not get puffed up and think we're something special because we're walking better than the people that were around us, is very tough. I, I don't like very tough. I don't think people should feel that. Well, of course they shouldn't, but we do. Anybody who says they haven't is lying to themselves as well as others. Because we all get to that place where we think that, okay, God, look at me. I'm, I'm really serving you. And, I, and you start thinking you're better than other people, at least subconsciously, even if you won't say it. There's that place where, hey, God, look, kind of God, look at me. You know, I'm, I'm really following you. I'm doing all these things you said. You know, and, and hey, I'm better than most of the people around me. Maybe not all the people, but I'm better than a lot. And the sad thing is we usually look at all the people that are really shouldn't be looked at in the first place. If we looked at, the, looked at other people, we might kind of go back to being humble and saying, okay, God, I'm not as good as I think I am. But the old saying that there's always somebody better than you, it's something, it's something very wonderful to remember. No matter how good you think you are at something, somebody is always better. Athletes find this out all the time you know, and they think you know, they've arrived, they're the, they're the greatest thing since sliced bread at their sport that they play and all of a sudden they come against somebody that's better than them. We as Christians want to be very careful that we don't try to get into this place where we think we're better because God can really set it up to drop us down a few pegs if we really get too, too proud of where we think we are. And even people that are very humble, they still have that same problem. I've heard people say, well, look how humble I am. You know, I'm, you know everybody's better than me. And, well, there's quite a bit of pride in just those statements that they're, they're trying to make. And all we want to do is stand before God and let God be our judge because he's the one that is going to be the righteous judge. And there are times when we may be better than most people, but God is still saying when we compare ourselves to God, we've got a long ways to go no matter how good we get. For most of us, we're going to realize that we're really not worth really that good. Verse 9, the Lord's voice cries unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see your name. Hear you the rod who has appointed it. For there are yet treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is abominable. Shall I count them pure, which the wicked balances with the bag of deceitful weights? For the rich man there, thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants of thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore also I will make you sick in smiting thee and making you desolate because of your sins. So here God is starting again. He's going to say, I'm speaking to the city, the, the person of wisdom. Will they hear, see your name? Hear the rod. The rod is Jesus. You know, the, in Isaiah 11, 1, it says that Jesus is the rod of Jesse. The, the, the springs forth. And it says, and who has appointed it? God has appointed wisdom. He has appointed Jesus to be the ruler. And it says, the wise will see him. Are there yet treasures in wickedness of, of wickedness in the houses of the wicked? The scant measure of it is abominable. How much do people look at the treasures? I mean, we would not sin if there wasn't at least some moment of pleasure in our sin. And there is, I mean, anybody who says there isn't pleasure in sin is trying to lie to themselves. 
Because if there wasn't a pleasurable, at least moment in your sin, you wouldn't do it. Now, sin has this ability to catch hold of us and trap us and keep us there. You know, the person who's taking those drinks and before they start getting caught up in their alcohol is enjoying usually that drink and the, the sensation of it and maybe the forgetfulness of that one night. But all of a sudden they get caught up in it and can't get out of it. When we get into sin, certain things may keep us away from it, but certain things will get, bring us into the middle of that sin. And there's always pleasure within the sin for a season. Once it gets its trap on us and we're drug into it perpetually thereafter, there's not that much pleasure in that sin. It's just a trap that we're caught up into. The addictions, the, the, the desires, the, the problems that have been, happened because of them. Uh, and these are, these are the things that we look at and he says there's a treasure in there but it is a scant measure and it's abominable. Those things that sin brings us that may seem pleasurable are just for a very short season. Matter of fact, sin always demands more sin to continue to be pleasurable. You get into drugs and you get used to the, used to the dose and you need more of the drug to bring, or different drug to bring, bring into. You get into pornography and you don't stop at the, the lowest levels. You start getting into more and harsh and deeper types and, and more deviant behavior. Okay, you don't just stay at the entry level of that, at that sin. The person who gets in, you know, gets addicted to, to coke or meth, you know, they didn't usually start with that drug. They would start with something lesser and, and get further into it. Uh, the alcoholic usually didn't start being an alcoholic with the hardest drink that they could find. They usually get there looking for something else that's going to take them deeper into their forgetfulness. Uh, verse 11, shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and a bag full of deceitful weights? This is kind of the interesting thing that he's, he's making kind of fun on this. Uh, back in their day, you would have your balance. And a lot of times the merchants would cheat people because they would have one set of weights for buying stuff and another set of weights for selling. And when they would sell, and you measure your, measure your products, they had these lighter weights and, and so that you would sell less material to them. And when you took their money, you'd switch to the heavier weights so that you would get more of their money. There was an old story about this, this uh, dairy farmer who was getting bread in exchange for his butter and he started making less and less of his butter, you know, trimming his butter down so that his pound of butter wasn't really a pound and he finally got mad at the baker and he goes you've been cheating me I'm getting less bread and he goes well I'm just I'm just measuring it against your pound of butter but this is the type of things that went on all the time back in those days and even to this day you know if our government kind of protects us in America they have the weights and measures department which comes out with a real way to make sure that their scales are correct delis and butchers used to kind of put their thumb on the scale and press it down a little bit as they were weighing out their meats before they charged you. And all kinds of tricks that people will use to try to cheat people. And here he's saying, what's your scale like? What are your weights like? What are you comparing yourself to? It's been done ever since there's been scales for them to compare to. So it's, so, but this is very clearly saying, how are we comparing ourselves? 
So many people will compare themselves to other people, but they very rarely will look at somebody they think is better than them to say their comparison. They almost always look at somebody who's worse. And you'll hear people say, I'm better than most people, or most people that I know, which is even sadder. But, you know, but they're always looking at an unjust scale at this. You know, they're looking at the people that they know they're better than. And we're not supposed to compare ourselves to others anyway, but if we really want to be looking at the right target and saying, are we better than somebody, that our standard needs to be God. The only problem is we fail that standard and we don't like to look at that standard. <laughs> because when we start comparing ourselves to what, what God tells us to be, we find ourselves deficient. And that bothers us. Now, we should be able to look at it and say, God, help me be more like you. We'll never be like him completely. We'll spend our entire life trying to be like him, but if our goal is to be like him, we're going to be better off. If I'm trying to be better than the average person, I've got the wrong standard to look at. Because it's fairly easy sometimes to be better than others, but God is the standard because his goal is perfection. He wants us to be a good witness, a good example. And if we're trying to just be better than most, we're, we're looking at the wrong standard. And it says, for the rich thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants speak lies. Their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. You know, this, we think about this, the world, when you look around the world, people are full of violence. They speak lies. They're, they're deceitful. And this is one of the things I keep saying over and over again. I am never surprised when the lost world sins. I'm not surprised when Christians sin because we are sinful beings. And who we really are without Christ is full of violence, full of lies, full of deceit, always trying to make ourselves look good. I'm, I've been a manager and there's so many times when I had to solve problems between employees or even in, in customers. And it would be so funny listening to people, especially when you watched what happened and you listened to their version of the truth. And I'm not saying they were lying. They were saying they spoke it, but they would always say it in a way that made them look good. <laughs> Leave out certain parts of the story. We got into a fight. Well, I walked up to him. I said something. They didn't mention they smacked him across the head, you know, face. You know, they just left that part out. They would leave little things out that would that made them look bad in the story. And there's certain people who do it all the time. There's people who are just pathological about it. They just cannot tell the truth. You know, you look at them and you're going, you, you get to the place where you don't believe anything they say because you don't know how much of it is <coughs> been true or not. But it is in our human nature to make ourselves look good or better than we, than we are. It, re, it just is part of our nature because we're sinners. And we don't want to look bad when we're trying to impress somebody or make somebody <laughs> look more positively at us. And full of violence, full of, full of lies. And it says, therefore also I will make you sick by smiting you and making you desolate because of your sins. God says that he's going to bring judgment. We need to be ready to just confess our sins before God and be forgiven. And that may mean before others. But God will always bring sickness and desolation in our life when we're, when we're trying to not be honest. And it says, you shall eat, but not be satisfied. You shall cast down in, in the, what you cast down in the midst of you, and you shall 
not take hold. You shall take hold, but you shall not deliver. And that which you deliver, I will give up to the sword. So he's saying, you know, everything we do, have you been in that waste time when it seems like everything that you're doing is not good? You're, you're never, you consume the sin and you're not satisfied. You grab hold of things and you, and you, you lose them. In Malachi, I guess, you know, Malachi tells the people, you put your gold in, in sacks with holes and you get to the end and there's no, no money in it. Okay? Oftentimes, that's exactly what we do with God. We're, we're fighting him, we're arguing with him. And he says, fine, you're never going to be satisfied. You're going to grab hold of things and lose them. You're going to, when you, what you do have, we're going to take away by force. And Malachi here is saying the same thing. It says in verse 15, you shall sow, but you shall not reap. You shall tread on the olives, but you shall not get the oil. The sweet wine, you shall not drink it. Again, more, more of you do the work and you don't get anything. When we're fighting with God, that is where we are almost continuously. When we release ourselves to God and we just honor God, we get blessed. Other times when we're fighting with God, we're going to go, I'm going to hold on to everything I'm God. I'm not going to do it your way. And we get no benefit out of it. And we look at all of the stuff that goes on. We've probably all been there where sometimes when we think we're doing all good things or we think we're, we're not doing it our way. We know we're not doing it God's way, but we're trying to do it our way. And we see how much we don't get out of the deal. And God is saying, I am going to keep it. I'm going to... I am going to fight against you when you try to do it your way. And God will keep fighting against us all the time when we try to do it our way instead of his way. And the last verse here, For the statutes of Omri are kept and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you walk in their counsels, that I should make you des a desolation and the inhabitants thereof a hissing. Therefore you shall bear the reproach of my people. Omri is a king of Israel. He's, he rules for 12 years. His father is Ahab. Ahab is a, you know, actually he's a pretty wimpy man because his wife rules the kingdom in his stead and her name was Jezebel. And Jezebel wasn't a nice person. He says all the rules that Amri put in, all the statutes and the works of Ahab, you're following after them. You're following after sinners. You're not following God's rules. You're not following his way of doing things. And he says, I will make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. And that's kind of an interesting word because they're looking at you and they're going, oh, you know, what, <laughs> what, you know, who are you? When Nathaniel is talking about Jesus, he goes, can anything good come out of, you know, or Nazareth? You know, he's like, Nazareth was just such a bad place. It was like, yeah. <laughs> You're trying to tell me the Messiah's coming out of there? You know, nothing yeah. good. Nothing good comes from there. S in yeah, that's that hissing. That's that hissing, what they're talking about when they're hissing. You know, nothing good comes from there. When all towns, all cities, all states have some place that they've kind of looked at, nothing good comes from there. That's where right. here we see that hissing. That, you know, we're going to make you that nobody desires you. You're going to be desolate. Nothing good. All right, let's close in prayer. And Lord, we just thank for this day. We thank for this opportunity to come before you and to, to listen to what you have. Lord, help us to always 
give in to your way of doing things and be listening and walking by faith in Jesus' name. Amen.